Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. So none of you will be surprised to know that yesterday marked a significant day for me. Of course, I mean it was the beginning of spring training. Baseball is back. Our long national nightmare is over. Baseball is back. You guys know uh, how much I love baseball, and I you get to see sort of when spring training starts are the, all these sort of goofy interviews that sort of the players do because it's spring training. It doesn't count. It's a little bit more low key, and it reminded me of one of my favorite baseball interviews at all of all time. Uh, there was a baseball player named Bryce Harper, and he was sort of a, a wonderkind. He was sort of ahead of his time. He made the major leagues when he was 19 years old, and he was an incredible player from the very beginning. Well, sometime around his first season, when he's 19 years old, uh, his team was going to take a road trip to Canada to play the Toronto Blue Jays. And, of course, the, the laws about what age you can consume alcohol in Canada are a little bit different than here in America. And so one of the reporters asked Bryce Harper on the news in front of the world, so uh, when you go to Canada, are you going to have a beer when you get there? And Bryce Harper does not miss a beat. I mean, he just looks straight at the guy in the eyes and says, that's a clown question, bro, and moves on. I mean, just completely brushes it off in the most humorous and winsome way because it's one of those questions that's a no-win, right? If he says yes, he gets in trouble because of the laws and all that. If he says no, people go, well, what? no, no. He just looks at the guy and says, that's, that's a clown question. Next, right? How many times do we see people in interviews, whether they're athletes, politicians, whoever they are, when it comes to a question that they don't want to answer, say something to the effect of next question next question i'm not answering that question we're moving on from there i'm not doing that right when we don't want to deal with something that's how we sort of do it but what does that what does that make us feel how do you feel when somebody asks a question you're like yeah yeah that's the good question that's the question you need to answer and they say next question you get a little frustrated right you get a little no no, you shouldn't be able to say next question. That. You, you, should, you should have to answer that. You see, we don't like it when other people pick and choose what questions they get asked. We don't like it when people pick and choose what questions they answer. You know, it's interesting that as much as we would get upset about that, we as Christians do something very, very similar to that all the time. We are, if we're honest, very selective in the way that we approach the Bible. We're very selective. We want all of the nice stuff. We want all of the nice tales on how to make your children better. We want all of the good messages. But then there's large chunks of the Bible that we go, no, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear the Bible talk explicitly about sexuality. That's uncomfortable to me. I don't want to see heroes of the faith doing things that are wrong. I'm not okay with that. And oftentimes what we do is we take a, and make a list quietly in our heads of our sins, and we begin to ignore those parts of the Bible. And then we take a list of people that are out there, people that are outside of our community, and we go, oh yes, th- those
those are the parts of the Bible. I, I want to I read the parts of the Bible that stick it to everybody who is outside of my community. Who's outside of my friend group. And we get really, really selective about the way that we read the Bible. One of the things that City Church is committed to is preaching through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons for that is because it's easy. I get to sort of wake up tomorrow and know what I'm preaching next Sunday. Right? Oh, just the, the next story in this book, the next section in this chapter, the next piece. But one of the other things that that forces us to do is it forces us to deal with passages of the Bible that, that we may be uncomfortable with. It forces me as a pastor to talk to you about things that you might be uncomfortable with. It forces me, when I read the Bible, to reflect on it and go, how am I, why would I want to ignore this text? We've been going through the book of Judges, and there have been some bad things that have happened so far. But this one is going to take the cake. And now it won't sit there for long because things are going to get worse in the book of Judges. But for now, this story is nothing short of a tragedy. It's a bad story where bad things happen and the heroes are not that great of guys. And so what I want to do is I want to stand up and read this together. We're going to be reading Judges chapter 11. I'm going to read the first 11 verses and the last 11 verses. Um, And so it's going to be up on the screen, or you can uh, open up your Bible app, or if you have a a Bible, you know, one of those old paper things, you can read it in there too. So stand with me as we read Judges chapter 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Now after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you might go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Uh, Now the next 18 verses go through sort of uh, Jephthah's attempts to make peace with Ammon. Uh, It's really great, but it's sort of, we're going to skip ahead to the next sort of piece of action in the narrative. Down at verse 29 it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, 
then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Arawar to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it has become a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadites, four days in a year. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This is not exactly the kind of story you would tell your kids in Sunday school. This is one that would probably get skipped in City Kids. This is not the one when you have a vacation Bible school that's first on the list. Oh, the kids will love the story of Jephthah and his daughter. This story is a tragedy. And this story has all sorts of stuff in it that we would prefer that the Bible didn't talk about. You see, what we want is a safe God and a sanitized Bible. We want a safe God who just does what we expect Him to do. We want a sanitized Bible who only talks about a certain number of topics on a safe list. And when we do that, When we sort of try to put God and the Bible in this box, what we do is we insulate our truths, or insulate ourselves from the hard truths about God and the Bible. We don't want to read stories about prostitute sons. We don't want to read stories in the Bible about human sacrifice. That is uncomfortable for us. And yet here we are, with the Bible in our hands, this is what it has to say. So what I want to do this morning is walk through this story a little bit together with you and sort of see some of the hard truths that when we would skip it, we would miss. Uh, The first thing we see is that Jephthah is not necessarily the hero that we would expect. The first thing we find out about Jephthah is that he is the son of a prostitute. His father hired a prostitute, and she got pregnant. And at least Jephthah's father had the the good sense to raise this young man 
and yet when he was old enough, his other brothers kicked him out of the house. And they actually, they didn't just kick him out of the house, they kicked him out of the neighborhood. They kicked him out of the country. They said, we don't want you around. He was very much an outsider. And then to sort of make things worse, he goes over to the next kind of country next door, and it says, worthless men gathered about him and went out with him. Now, the Bible is sort of being a little cagey or using sort of language there. What that's talking about is basically when Jephthah got kicked out of his home, he went and became a gang leader and found a bunch of other guys kind of like him who had been kicked out, and they didn't make their money farming. They didn't make their money on livestock or grain. They made their money taking stuff from other people. This was a gang. And there's a certain skill set that you get really good at when your job is to hurt people and take their food. Namely, you become a pretty good warrior on account of that's how you make your living. And we see when we start to read this that God chooses to use people that we don't expect. God chooses to use people that we would not anticipate being the heroes of the Bible. If Jephthah, or someone like Jephthah, were to come up the elevators here at City Church, how quick would we be to invite him out to lunch? If someone like Jephthah was your kid's teacher at school, how would you feel? If all of a sudden, your company made an outside hire for your boss, and it was someone who was a gang leader and the known son of a prostitute, how would that sit with you? See, we don't, we don't like who God chooses to put over us. And oftentimes, we are very, very picky. Let me put it another way. How many times have you and I have spoken ill of another Christian because they didn't meet our particular set of moral standards that we thought were most important in the Bible? How quick are we to throw shade at people who are different than us? I know I'm guilty of this. This is what Jephthah's brothers did. They threw him out because he was a worthless fellow. And yet, who is it that God chooses to use? It's Jephthah. And we're going to see that things don't actually get better for Jephthah. This story is not the sort of fairy tale with a happy ending. But here's what's so fascinating. When the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament gives his sort of crash course on the heroes of the faith, when he sort of lists off Abraham and Noah and David, do you know who makes that list? Do you know who makes the cut as one of the heroes of our faith? The son of a prostitute, the gang leader, the daughter-sacrificing Jephthah. Makes the hall of faith. How quick are we to throw out other people who we don't think have what it takes to be a Christian, a leader? And the, the backside of this is true as well. How many of us beat ourselves up because we don't think we have what it takes? How quick are we to say, 
I'm like Jephthah, and I probably deserve to be Well, after Jephthah goes away and sort of gets his skill set, earns his trade, becomes good at what he does, something happens. War comes to Israel, and all of a sudden, his brothers go, well, we don't have anybody who can lead us in this battle. What are we going to do? Oh, let's go get our brother who we kicked out. Let's go get Jephthah. And they go and say, hey, Jephthah, we want you to be the head of our army. And what's Jephthah's response? It's, it's, it's what you and I would say. You, are, you, are you talking to me? Do, do you not remember what we did? Do you not remember how this all went down? Do you, you kicked me out. Not just of my house. Out, you kicked me out of my country because of who my mom is. And now that you're in trouble, you're coming back to me? Okay, fine. I'll come and lead you. But when, when this is all over with, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be in charge. Jephthah, son of the prostitute, is going to be in charge. And what do the people say? Anything. Anything to get the bad guys off our back. Some of you may already be putting the pieces together, but how often is this exactly the way that we treat God? When things are going well in our lives, God is pushed to the side. When things are going well, I, I'm fine. I don't need God right now. I, I've got, you know, things are going really well for me. My job is going really well. I'm conquering sin all over the place in my life. Things are fantastic. God you go sit over there. God, you go to the next country next door because I've got this. And then bad things happen. And what do we do? Uh, God, I need, you, I need you back over here now. God, I, yeah, I know, I know that I've been ignoring you for the past little bit, but a little help. The same way that the people of Israel pushed Jephthah out of their lives. And then when they needed him, all of a sudden came back and said, we'll do anything. Just come back and help us. That's us. We pray when we're in a foxhole, not when we're in the penthouse. We pray when things are bad and we don't give thanks when things are good. We think that we need God for that major promotion, but when it comes to the day-to-day -day filling out the reports at our job, we don't think we need Him. We think we need God for big decisions like where to put our kids into school, but not the day-to-day -day decisions on how to parent. We think we need God for some epic decision like should we get engaged or not, and not the day-to-day -day how does God's Word bring bearing on our relationship. We freeze God out of so many areas of our lives, and then when things get bad, what do we do? So Jephthah comes back. He comes back, and he begins to lead the people of Israel. And he negotiates on their behalf, and he finds out that they're going to have to go to war. And so Gideon has, or I'm sorry, Jephthah has an army around him, and he's about to go into battle. But he says something. He says, God, if you will indeed deliver Israel by my hand, 
And when he says, if you, if you will indeed do this, what we see in Gideon is this sort of fear. This sort of echoes of his past. Because, because what Gideon knows is people to reject him. Because what did his family do to him at a critical moment in his life? They pushed him away. And you can see Gideon struggling with what has happened earlier in his life and the way that he approaches God. And he says, God, if you'll indeed do this, he's unsure. So he says, God, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll offer the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me as a burnt offering sacrifice to you if you'll do this thing. If you'll deliver me, I'm going to, I'm going to burn whole the first thing that comes out to meet me out of my house. This does not at all sound like the way that God has said that he wanted to be worshipped, does it? In fact, this is precisely not. God says, whatever you do, don't try to offer humans to me as burnt offerings. That's a bad idea. This is not what we should be doing. But Jephthah has been so influenced by his culture, by all of the gods around them that said, yes, burning humans, totally cool if it's a big enough deal. If you've got a big enough prayer request for God, get your kids. Jephthah is so influenced by these outside cultures that he thinks that he can bargain with God, that he can impress God. God, look at this thing that I'm going to do for you. I'm going to offer the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me. Now, they didn't have house pets back then. That was not a common thing. And when he says, whatever comes out of my house to greet me, it's very much intended. And you can see, he's thinking a person. Now, the tension as we read it, right, is we don't know who that person is. But when Jephthah vows that he will burn as an offering something that comes out of his house, he has in full mind that it's going to be a person. Why would Jephthah do this? Why would Jephthah be so insecure that he says, I am going to burn alive the first person I see when I get home if I win this battle? Because he is trying to bargain with and manipulate God. He thinks that God can be bought. And we hear that and we go, oh, goodness me. I would never. Yes, you would. Stop it. Yes, we do. God, if you would just give me some more money, I could, I will promise you I'll increase my giving to the church. God, if I can just if I can just get this level of fame, this level of acclaim that I want, I will be sure to give you all the credit. God, if you will just give me a peaceful and calm house. God, if you will just... What is it for you? What is that thing in your life and mine? that drives us to want to try to bargain with God. When we try to bargain with God, 
we make the same fundamental mistake as Jephthah. When we think that God can be impressed by our good works, when God can be impressed with the way that we run our family, when God can be impressed by how good of a work we are, when we think that, we are fundamentally misunderstanding that God is a God of grace. The Spirit was already with Jephthah. He should have known that the battle was already won. And yet, what does he do? He tries to make this rash, big show. God, I'm going to do something big for you if you give me this battle. Where do you and I do this? Because whatever the thing is that we try to bargain with God to get, that is actually, fundamentally, what you worship. The thing that you most want God to give you is what you worship, not Him. So Gideon makes this vow, and and how does the text read? I said Gideon again. Jephthah. Jephthah makes this vow, and the text almost fast-forwards to the battle, Right? Several times as we've gone through the book of Judges, we've got these really cool battle scenes that have been laid out to us. We get these tactics, and we get all this stuff that happens. And what does it say? basically says, and then Jephthah went out and fought them in one. Slightly more verbose than that, but not much. Because what does the storyteller, what does the writer of the book of Judges want to help us get to? Who's coming out the door? What's in the box? Who's coming out the door? Who's coming out the door? And he gets home, and who comes out the door? His daughter. His only child, daughter. She comes out the door, and he rips his clothes. He, he goes incredible Hulk. He, he says, no! Anybody but you. Anybody... What and, and do you see how accusative he gets of his daughter? What have you done? I'm sorry, Dad. You just led the armies to a great victory. I thought it'd be a good time for a song and a dance. No! He sees her and he says, I have vowed a vow that I would offer as a burnt offering whatever comes out next. So she says, just give me two months to weep. And then she comes back, and Gideon fulfills his vow. Gideon burns his daughter alive because of a rash, unnecessary vow that he made. That is disturbing. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, and you hear this text, I get it. This is disconcerting. It's disturbing. Because we want to think of the Bible as just all these happy stories with good moral tales. And a sort of tagline at the end, and that's why you should always be nice to one another. And here we have a story where a hero makes an unnecessary and rash vow trying to impress God as if God can be bought or manipulated by our works. And a young girl, 
probably 13 or 14 years old, who is burned alive by her own father. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you read this story, it probably provokes a bit of moral outrage. How can God be like this? Is, is this the God that city church worships? And I want to sort of address this for just a second. First answer is yes. Yes. This story is in the Bible, which we believe to be the word of God from start to finish. We also, I also want to point out that God never says, that's a good idea, Gideon. God never tells Gideon, to, this is Gideon's idea, not God's. But there's another question that I sort of want to ask, which is this. While I would agree that this is morally outrageous, if you're not a Christian, where does that morality to say that this is outrageous comes from? Because as Christians, we have a foundation for what we believe, for what we believe is moral and good. But if you're not a Christian... Where does the idea that we should just be a good person come from? And for that matter, what is the sort of measure of a good person? Is it like how well I tip a bandit coffee? Is it how nice I am in like, if I have to, if I'm forced, like against my will to drive to Pinellas Park and go to the shopping center up there, right? If I, if I have to go up there to that target, right? And people are terrible in the parking lot. If it's, oh, I totally didn't act the fool in the parking lot. I'm a good... Where does that come from? Christianity gives us the moral foundation to read this text and go, something isn't right here. But without a foundation, where do we get the, the morals to say, how could God do this? But at the same time, what's interesting is how this story points us to Jesus. Because we read this and we go, how could this happen? How could this innocent girl, 13 or 14 years old, be burned alive by her own father for a rash vow that he shouldn't have made? And we look at this and all we can see is tragedy. As we look at it, though, we don't have a God who is distant and unconnected from tragedy. Because when we think about Jesus, when we think about this story, is not he the one who was innocent? Who was killed for the folly of other people? When he had to go to the cross, did he not willingly do it just like Jephthah's daughter? And so one of the things that we need to see in this text is the way that we have that visceral reaction to the death of Jephthah's daughter. That sort of, that's not fair. That sort of gut thing that jumps up inside of us and wants to go, no, not okay. She's innocent. He's the bad guy. Why does she have to die? The same way we have that thing rise up inside of us that says that is honestly the same way that we should feel about the death of Jesus. Because there has never been anyone as innocent as him. 
You see, one of the things that we have done is we have sort of shielded ourselves from the, the violence of the cross. We have turned the cross of Jesus into something sentimental, something nice. We sing songs like the old rugged cross and the wondrous cross. And those are good songs. Those are good hymns. Nate, don't take them off the list because of what I'm about to say. And yet those songs have a way of inoculating us, of of keeping us back from the fact that the cross was an absolute tragedy. Where a pure and innocent man who had never sinned was violently killed. For your sins and mine. Not because you deserved it. Not because you're a good person. You see, while we see a great tragedy in this story, this story points us to the greatest tragedy, which is our source of hope. Which is a picture of love. Because though all of us don't like who God chooses, though all of us only call on God when we need Him, and though we can't imagine that God is as graceful as He is, God still loves us so much that He says, I will willingly enter into this tragedy for you. And on your behalf. He does this sheerly out of His grace. And when we begin to realize this, when we begin to see what the cross means, one of the first things that happens is we realize that we don't need to bargain with God. We don't need to bargain with God because He is already for us. Jesus, if you are trusting in Him, cannot love you any more than He does right now. Nothing you can do this week is going to affect the depth of His love for you. You are already his absolute beloved son and daughter, whom he wants to see grow into all that you are made to be. Who he wants to see made into the person that he designed you to be. And you cannot affect that by bargaining with God. And you begin to see that it's that it's fruitless to bargain with God because I don't need to. Because of the cross, because of the tragedy of the cross, I am fully loved and accepted and forgiven. And as we see how loved and accepted and forgiven we are, we begin to invite Jesus into all of the areas of our lives. We stop isolating him to the foxhole, to the times where it's getting really bad. Yes, we do need God in those moments, but we need God in the moments of the day-to-day. We need God in the moments where we decide, am I going to drive out of downtown on Central or on First Avenue? Do I want a pretty drive or a fast drive? All of the decisions in our lives, all of the little things, all of a sudden are opened up because of how great He loves us. We don't need to bargain because He is already graciously looking towards us. And therefore, we can invite Him into all areas of our lives. And we are transformed more and more by His grace. And when we begin to invite him into all areas of our lives, what happens is we begin to look up around us. We begin to look and say, how is God working today? Because I'm going to invite him into the way that I do my work, into the way that I do my hobbies, into the way that I parent my children. And as we kind of pull our chins up, 
stop looking at our own navel, as we begin to look around, what we'll begin to see is what God is doing. That God is at work at our office. God is at work already in your gym. God is at work at the places that you go every week, whether that's Green Bench or Bandit, whether that's Intermezzo or Bodega. God is at work in these places around us. And he's going to use people like you and I. People who don't have the best pedigree. People who are not the most morally upright people in St. Petersburg. People that far too often want to isolate God. People that want to pick and choose and cherry pick what parts of the Bible we read. People just like Jephthah and the people of Israel. People like us begin to become the people that God uses to transform the world around us. Who who do you know that needs to hear this this week? I need to hear this. But who can you share this with? See, one of the things that engaging with the whole Bible does is it forces us to push into hard places, places we don't want to deal with. And as we do that, we are better equipped for the mission God sends us on. Because if we can read the story of the son of a prostitute unnecessarily burning his daughter alive and be changed by it, why not those other hard parts of the Bible that we want?